So as Tim has said, we're going to be reading from the Bibles now. If you have one, please open it up to 1 Peter. And as we're at the beginning of a new series, we're going to start at chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Hey, how are we, Chaplain? Good to see you all. If we haven't met, my name's James, one of the pastors here. Make sure you've got uh, a Bible open in front of you. Uh, you will have got a sense, uh, as we read then, and uh, community groups this week, that there is a feast for us uh, in this passage, and you'll miss stuff if you don't have God's Word in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to give you one tonight to take home. Uh, if you've forgotten your Bible, uh, stick up your hand, and Tim would love to put one in your hand if you need one in front of you. As he does that, I want to point out to you uh, the boarding pass you received on the way in. And I've just lost mine. Um, On the floor, thank you. 
Um, the boarding pass you received on the way in. Um, it's got a bunch of stuff about the series, which is really cleverly done. Uh, but there is also a big thing is there's a QR code, which will take you to a page on our website um, where you'll see on tomorrow, if you go there, you'll see the passage coming for next Sunday. Uh, and there's a place for you as you read ahead during the week, as you're thinking and pondering, uh, any questions or comments you might want to put up for others to encourage them, to challenge them, uh, and we might draw them into uh, coming Sunday. So that's just a way that we, in addition to communion groups and Sunday, can keep on wrestling with uh, God's Word together. I'll leave that with you. Put that in your Bible as a bookmark for the series so you've always got that. Uh, I'd love for you to pray with me now as we continue in God's Word. Father God, we thank you for this really special and privileged time that we finish our weekend together, enjoying your blessing, sitting under your word, and we ask that you would transform us in the power of your spirit so that we would more and more believe and take hold of all the riches and goodness that you have for us in your son, Jesus. We pray in his beautiful name. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series in 1 Peter. And just to be clear, this is the same Peter who was a fisherman in Galilee uh, and left everything to follow Jesus. The same Peter who could speak at times with such boldness and clarity. Jesus, you are the Son of God, the Messiah. And Jesus, I will never leave you. I'm prepared to go to prison and death with you. And yet the same Peter who dared to rebuke Jesus for going to the cross. The same Peter who on the night that Jesus was betrayed denied even knowing him three times. And so one of the things I love about Peter is how Jesus did this powerful work of transformation in him. Do you remember that moment after Jesus' resurrection when Jesus comes to him and he says three times, Peter, do you love me? And it kind of stung for Peter because it reminded him of the three times that he had denied Jesus. But in that same moment, Jesus forgives and restores him because three times Jesus says, Peter, feed my sheep. He loved the way Jesus took that arrogant, speak before you, think uh, man who was broken by his own failure and transformed him into a humble servant. And so here in 1 Peter, Peter is feeding Jesus' sheep. He writes to a bunch of churches uh, scattered throughout Uh, the provinces of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. So they're Christians scattered throughout what is now modern Turkey. And Peter brings this wonderfully God-centered honesty and realism about life. And so that's my hope, my goal for us tonight, that we would all grasp and see this wonderful God-centered honesty and realism. So the first bit of honesty tonight, you don't belong. That's not something you say in church, is it? You don't belong. But it's there in those two words in verse 1. I reckon you can kind of sum up the whole book with those two words in verse 1. Did did you see what they were? Elect exiles. Elect exiles. There's a, a tension there, isn't there? To be chosen and yet on the outside to be special and yet excluded, to be, it's like the the footballer who's part of the squad and yet sent to train on their own away from the team, or the child who's a member of a family but has to eat outside all alone, or the employee who's sent to work in the basement by themselves, elect and yet 
exiles, there's a tension there. That's what I love about 1 Peter. It is wonderfully honest about life. Because we all feel this tension, don't we? That we're, we're meant, we're created for something bigger, something better, something glorious. And yet so often life can be really grubby and painful and difficult. It's captured in our image for the series, the runway. We've got our bags all packed here and down the center aisle is the kind of uh, center aisle of the plane and, and you know, in an event of a hub, you head outside, right? That's, that's the direction we go. Um, and that sense that we could be going somewhere really special on a great journey, there's a great opportunity and yet we're confronted by that word, exile, exile. Because here's the reality. Here's what we need to grasp and remember. All this, our lives in the hills, it's not our real home. Don't get me wrong, I love living in the hills. It's a great place to do life and raise a family. I, I love this church, not so much our leaky roof when it rains but, and the driveway when it's all churned up, but I love Norwest. But we don't really belong here. We're exiles, we're foreigners, we're strangers, we're just visitors in the hills. Well, that's a lovely, warm, encouraging way to start a series, isn't it? You're strange and different. You don't belong. Welcome to church. So how, do, how does that make you feel? Shocked? Unsettled? Because the hills kind of do feel like home, don't they? And there's a part of me that wants it to be home. But listen, so many of our struggles and our disappointments and frustrations in life come or will come because we get this wrong. Because we think that life in Sydney should feel like home. We should be happy now. We should find meaning and a sense of belonging now. And so when verse 6 happens, when we suffer grief in all kinds of trials, where that's a devastating sickness, crushing unemployment, aching loneliness, a death in the family, a crippling depression or anxiety, unjust treatment, grief and all kinds of trials. When that happens, we, we don't really know what to do with that because the home that we tried to build here and now has begun to collapse around us. But God says, don't worry about that. This is not your real home. You're an exile. You're just a visitor here. And your home is somewhere far better. God's eternal kingdom. Don't you love how wonderfully honest Peter is about life? So how do we begin to embrace that together? Well, I read a great article by a pastor, Matt Fuller. Um, he went through a burnout in ministry, uh, had a kind of emotional breakdown, had to take a lot of time off. And one of the things he said that really helped him begin to recover was just being really honest about how he was struggling. And he wrote this, If we share only strengths, that can lead to competitiveness and resentment. But if we share weakness, it can really build community. Isn't that so helpful? When we come here on a Sunday night and we put on the brave face and we pretend life's okay. We kind of do that car park miracle. It doesn't matter what's happened in the week or how rubbish we feel. We get out of the car. Hi, it's all good. How are you this week? If we do that, it, that, that builds distance because maybe we feel the need to compete with each other or, 
we feel like a failure and so we withdraw. But when we're honest, it builds community and fellowship. So in a moment, I'm going to ask us to do something together that's a little strange for Anglicans. In a moment, I'm going to ask us to raise our hands. Now, it's okay, it's not in a song, right? It's in the sermon, so that's a safe place, right? Because here's what I'm wondering. Within the last five years, how many of us have been through a season where we didn't know how we would cope? Didn't know what we were going to do? Maybe it was something related to work or study, amongst your network of friends, maybe something in your family, some kind of health issue. Maybe you went through a season of great spiritual doubts and temptation. If you've been in the last five years through a season like that where you didn't know how you were going to cope, would you be so brave as to raise your hand right now? Look at that. Look at all those hands. It's been me in the last five years. There's been times when I didn't know how I was going to get out of bed and come here on a Sunday. But when we, we raise our hands like that, when we share that, that destroys distance and builds community and fellowship. So we're honest with each other. And here's the beautiful thing about 1 Peter. That God doesn't just kind of leave us with our hands up saying, oh, I'm really struggling. And then God, God actually redirects that. He says, actually, there is a place you belong. There is a God-centered reality to life. And so the first part of that is that you are powerfully chosen. You see that word in verse 1, God, elect, God's elect. And then in verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, sometimes I know that that word um, chosen or elect can be really controversial in churches, maybe in community groups, DCs. You kind of think, well, if God chose me, does that mean I'm a robot with no choice of my own? It can be controversial, but it's never controversial in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that how you got saved or how you followed Jesus now is really simplistic, but God puts election and choice there as a fact. He says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And that's what God's foreknowledge means. Foreknowledge isn't that God kind of looked ahead and saw what was coming. It wasn't that he looked ahead and saw how a James Lewis might respond to the good news about Jesus, and so then he chose me. No, that's not foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge means that he knew you personally, not knew about you, but knew you personally before you knew yourself, before your parents knew you, before your parents even planned to have kids. God chose you. And he gave us, verse 3, a new birth, a fresh start with God, a new heart that wants to please him. And again, you don't, you don't do new birth yourself. It's like your first birth. You were there, but you didn't do anything, right? I mean, again, put up your hands if you think you were the obstetrician or the midwife at your birth. Anyone? Put up your hand if you delivered yourself. That's amazing. I need to talk to you afterwards. You would be... <laughs> the first person in the history of the world to do that. You don't give birth to yourself. It's the same with our new birth. God chose you. He gave you new birth. And, and so God puts that here in his word, not so that we'd feel overwhelmed and intimidated, but we'd feel secure and safe at rest. God wants you to know that tonight. 
that there is this reality that we are exiles and we will suffer grief and all kinds of trials, but there is a better reality. There is a better story for our lives. We've been powerfully chosen by God. And then the next uh, God-centered reality is that you're divinely secure. Have a look. Verse 3, he says, We've been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You love how the sense of security and safety just builds and builds and builds. Because you've been given new birth into a family where your father owns the universe. And so you have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Your future, your reward, your inheritance can't be wiped out in a stock market crash. Can't be washed away in the floods. It can't be stolen from you by sickness or death. There is nothing that life can throw at you. Nothing that can happen to you in life that can take away your inheritance. Why? Because it's kept in heaven for you. It's like Jesus says in John 14, In my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. So in heaven, God has an inheritance with your name on it. Jen Ho, Johnny Wenser, on and on and on. This is not theory. This is reality. Nothing can take away your inheritance. Actually, to be honest, there is one thing. You can stop trusting Jesus. That's a scary thought, isn't it? And so look at verse 5. Verse 5 is so amazing. Who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Who's the who in verse 5? Well, it's the you from verse 4. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That's us. Who, through faith, are shielded by God's power. So what does that mean? Is it my faith or God's power that shields me? Yes. God shields us by his power, and that power is used to strengthen our faith. We experience God's power through our faith being strengthened because the only threat to our inheritance is our faith failing. So what does God do? He strengthens that faith so that it doesn't fail. Isn't that good news? Amen? Because we feel our fragility and brokenness in life, don't we? We put up our hands before Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. When we sing that, when we feel that, that's God working in us, strengthening our faith so that we throw ourselves on God's power and grace again and again. Lord, I'm failing, I'm falling, I'm slipping. Will you strengthen me? Strengthen my faith. And God keeps us. There's honesty, there's reality. We are exiles, we're just visitors in this world and we will suffer grief and all kinds of trials. But God says there is a better story, there's a better reality for your life. You are powerfully chosen and you are divinely secure. And when you grasp that, when you really take hold of that and that fills your life, what it does is produce this kind of exploding joy in us. Now, let's be really clear here because this is an area we get 
easily very confused. Joy is not about you faking and pretending that you're okay. Not putting on the brave face and trying to be happy all the time. I'm a Christian, so I've got to be happy and that's joy. No, no, that's not joy. Because Peter is really realistic here about suffering grief and all kinds of trial. It hurts. It's painful. And yet he says there's still joy. Why? Because we know that we've been given new birth into a living hope and we have an inheritance kept in heaven for us. And God is shielding us by strengthening our faith. And then verse 7, we know that there's a purpose to those trials. They're knocking off our rough edges cutting away our pride, burning away false hopes so that we become like Jesus. And then verse 8, though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's rich, isn't it? Inspiring. But How does it work? Because I reckon we read that and we go, yeah, but it still would have been good to be there with Jesus. Don't you feel that? To have walked in Palestine with Jesus, wouldn't that have been great? Don't you feel that? And yet, having this four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, is better than being there. Because there were thousands of people who saw Jesus and never believed in him. And the disciples followed Jesus for three years and abandoned him. So having the Gospels is better than being there. So let's just kind of process that and walk through that together. The Gospels take you into the inner circle of the disciples where you could never have gone. You get to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and John and Jesus. You wouldn't have gone there. You get to watch Jesus shepherd and lead the disciples over three years. You get to hear whole sermons and parables from Jesus, not just sort of grabs and snatches as you stood on a mountain. And you get to see the full richness of Jesus' power and character. Listen to this. His perfect wisdom, his courage, his honouring of women, his gentleness with children, his compassion for lepers, his tears and weeping over Jerusalem, his faithfulness in the face of exhaustion and opposition, his love for all people, his power to calm storms and heal the sick, his forgiveness for those who murdered him. And you get to go through the Last Supper and Gethsemane and his trial and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And as you do that again and again, you get to see how Jesus' will was fixed on his Father's glory and how his mind was always humming and buzzing with the salvation of the world. And how his heart pumped with truth and love for you and me. So as you read the Gospels and you meet Jesus again and again, you say, verse 8, Though I have not seen him, I love him. And even though I do not see him now, I believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for I know that Jesus is taking me home. So how do we do this together? How do we help each other with that? There's one word that really helps us. It's really easy to miss. It's in verse 3. Luke picked it up before. It's the first word. Call it out when you see it. Praise. 
Do you notice that? Peter is worshipping as he writes. He doesn't write and say, hey, let me tell you about what God did. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is worshipping, he's celebrating, he's praising God. So let me ask you this. When you read the Bible, how do you read it? Do you you read it as a worshipper? Do you worship as you read? Because there are a lot of ways you can read the Bible. One way is kind of like this sort of arm's length token. I only read it because I have to or because I feel guilty if I don't. Or you can read like this. Hmm. Yeah, I can see what Peter's doing here. He's uh, drawing down Old Testament themes and I can see the structure and flow of his argument. You can read like that, like an academic. And don't get me wrong, we need to be rigorous and dig deep into God's word and ask lots of questions. But we also need to read like this, open-handed, worshipping, praising, celebrating, thanking God. Because theology, our study of God and his word, must always lead to worship. Because this term we're going to do 1 Peter, right? And we can understand the themes and the structure and the key verses. And if we come to the end of the term and you say, hey, you know what, James? I never understood the book of 1 Peter, but I understand it a lot better now. If we do all that and it doesn't produce in us worship, then we haven't understood Theology must always produce worship. So that's why an amen and a thank you, Jesus, and a praise God is good and helpful in church. People might think you're a little weird, but that's okay. We need more people like that. Amen. Because here's the honest reality. The hills is not our home. Don't live for the hills. We're going to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But God has said to us tonight that there is a bigger reality. There is a better story over our lives. We're powerfully chosen. We're divinely secure. And when we get that, it produces exploding joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, prone to wonder. Lord, we feel it prone to leave you, the God we love. So here's our hearts. Take and seal them. Seal them for thy courts above. Please take your word and apply it powerfully into each of our hearts and minds so we wouldn't just grow in knowledge of 1 Peter and be able to point out key verses and the structure of the argument, but that we would grow in worship and delight and praise as we overwhelmed and delighted again and again at all your goodness and power to us in the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his beautiful name. Amen.